Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, In Conversation. This podcast has been taken from the practical news updates at Beaver Congress 2021. Here, Michael Schrammer discusses recent research and developments in equine surgery. Our first speaker this morning, this session, session is the practical news update, and our first speaker is Michael Schrammer. Michael is professor at the Cole National Veterinary in France. And, and he, he will be talking, talking to us, us uh, about, about the topics, topics that have come, come up in surgery, surgery this year. Thank you, Bruce. It's, it's always, always a great, great pleasure to be here, here especially this year uh, when, when the world's come, coming, coming back, back to life. life. So, so um, we, we often, often talk, talk about, about the art of surgery, of but of course, of course we, we owe it, owe it to, to our patients and our clients who base that art in science as much as we can, and thereby did it to what we call the evidence pyramid. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, due to, due to the, the small numbers that are often, um, the small data sets that are often available for these equine surgery studies, we rarely, rarely get added to the bottom echelons, echelons of this pyramid. But even, but even so, I've uh, selected seven, seven papers, papers today, three soft tissue, three uh, orthopedics, and, and one, one more general, general paper. And, and hopefully we'll manage, manage to get through those in the next 25 minutes. So, for the, for the soft tissue papers, papers, I've limited, limited myself to uh, three colleague papers that I thought might offer those of us that uh, do colleague surgery a couple of uh, practical tips that may sometimes uh, make, make life a little bit simpler or more interesting um, with, with their help. help. The first, first one, one is, is a paper from the Bostrave Clinic, Clinic in Belgium. Belgium. Um, and, and the premise, premise is that, that uh, indirect inguinal hernias are uh, emergency surgical situations that usually require a surgical correction. Now, now, these, these authors, authors have already proposed a, a conservative way to manage uh, or, or manually reduce uh, these inguinal hernias under general anesthesia, but this, this is the first time they document the results of this technique on a large series of horses, 89 horses. And so, and so in, in the paper, they explain the technique in reasonable detail. So, so for instance, they position, position the horse uh, in dorsal recumbency, extend the limbs backwards so the tibia is uh, horizontal and, and the metatarsus is vertical. This allows the external and internal inguinal rings, rings apparently to align so that it's easier to reduce uh, the hernia. And then and they, they describe how you position thumbs and index, index finger of both hands between the testicle and the incarcerated bowel to try and, and massage the bowel, the bowel back, back into the abdominal cavity. So they, so they also give some tips as to, as to how, how to recognize that the bowel has effectively been reduced to the abdominal cavity, which, which you can find in the paper. And then, and then the, results the results are really interesting because they managed to manually reduce 90% of the, of the incarcerated inguinal hernias in stallions. Now, when, now, when it, comes it comes to looking at the need for a laparotomy following this manual, manual reduction, it's a little, little bit harder to interpret because, because the first 20 horses, they elected to perform a laparotomy and an exploratory laparotomy to determine whether or not there was any vitalized bowel present. But they found such a low percentage of vitalized bowel present, they then Dismissed with, with that automatic reverting, reverting to uh, an exploratory laparotomy, and of and the, the remaining horses, uh, they only opened, opened up 19. Nine, nine because they were unsuccessful at reducing the uh, incarceration manually, and, and ten, ten because, because the horse started showing signs of, of colic within, within 24 hours of the manual reduction. reduction. And if and you look, look at the laparotomy findings uh, in, in these horses, the 39 horses that went laparotomy after manual reduction. There were, there were five, five with right dorsal displacement of the colon. 
Only, only five, five horses, horses had necrotic, necrotic bowel, bowel that needed removing, and, and eight, eight horses had a small intestinal volvulus. So the so conclusions of this first paper here are that, that uh, there was a high percentage of, of uh, horses, horses that were able to be manually reduced, with a, with a high short-term short survival of 92% and few long-term complications. 73% of the horses, if you don't, don't count the, the elective 20, uh, uh, at, at the start, start of the study, 73% of the horses were discharged without laparotomy, and 17% reductions needed a delayed laparotomy. And, and only 7% of the horses needed a resection anastomosis of, of, of small, small intestine. intestine. So, so the relatively small number, uh, if you consider that. Now, the one, the one thing that's difficult to work out from this paper is uh, the recurrence rate of uh, inguinal hernias. As we all know, if you do not uh, take precautionary measures, these horses can, can recur, the inguinal hernia can recur. And, and so, so uh, this, this is a bit, bit difficult to deduce from the paper because 31% of the horses underwent castration to prevent recurrence, and 43% had, had delayed, delayed laparoscopic closure of the internal inguinal rings, rings uh, even though some, some of those did have recurrence still, still in spite of this procedure. The second uh, colleague paper, paper I want to highlight is a paper dealing with, with uh, small, small colon, colon impactions. Now, all of us that do these surgeries know that these are usually um, um, more, or more or less emergency, emergency uh, surgical interventions, and then and when, when you manipulate the small colon to massage the content with or without enema towards the anus, this structure can become very congested, very friable, the cirrhosis tears easily, and, 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 and the colon is easily damaged. And that's, and that's why I was so um, impressed by the fact that uh, 16 out of 16 horses in this study had an uneventful recovery, simply by opening the flank up with a modified grid approach and carefully manually massaging the obstruction towards the anus. Only two of the 16 horses needed an enema to do this. So all 16 survived and returned to their original use without complications. Now, I think you can see on the picture here something that if you, if you read, read between, between the lines, lines or even in the paper, paper a, lot a lot of the obstructions were focal, dealing with fecal and, and only one of them had a more, a more extensive, longer um, uh, small, small colon, colon impaction. And I think this may be the reason why the results are so uh, impressive and why um, they don't mention anything about the friability or the, um, um, the danger of damaging the colon. I thought for a moment when I was reading this that maybe the fact that you have the horse standing and you don't need to exteriorize the colon so much may have helped in keeping the colon more healthy, but uh, maybe it's got more to do with the fact that it's a focal obstruction they're dealing with in 15 out of the 16 cases. So I was wondering, is extraluminal massage less traumatic for the small colon uh, as there's a limited need to exteriorize, but most, uh, most of these were focal impactions. Even so, they did not need to perform an entrotomy to get rid of the fecalids. They easily managed to massage them uh, and evacuate them towards the outside. And interestingly also, which all of us, you know, most of us know, uh, large colon impactions that occur concurrently with many of these conditions, also small intestinal obstructions, tend to resolve spontaneously and do not need um, a, small, uh, a large colon entrotomy to evacuate the colon. The third co uh, colleague paper I wanted to put up here is, is, is essentially a, a large case report. There's four cases here, but it's an interesting tip if you're dealing with inaccessible problems of the cranial abdomen, such as gastric impactions, diaphragmatic hernias, uh, problems of the duodenum, for instance. And David Freeman and his co-authors um, present a, 
a relatively simple way of extending the midline incision towards the sternum uh, and then following the costal arch in the direction of the location of the problem in the abdomen. So if, if you have a stomach problem, you can uh, deviate to the horse's left side, or if you have uh, a diaphragmatic hernia, you may need to deviate the incision in the opposite direction. And, and then you turn the flap into the abdomen, you get an assistant to push down, and it, it uh, uh, apparently uh, massively improves the accessibility of these deeper structures. Now, closure is quite uh, straightforward. So one uh, simple interrupted suture is used at the angle between the transverse and the uh, uh, vertical part of the incision, and then both parts of the incision are closed routinely as we close most abdominal wounds. So um, there are four cases in this paper, uh, four large breed horses, three with a gastric impaction and one diaphragmatic hernia, all survived to hospital discharge, but one horse unfortunately succumbed later to laminitis because it uh, developed myopathy after the surgery. Um, now, all have developed uh, infections of the midline incisions, but the authors suggest that these infections are more likely to do with the length of the surgery um, and the surgical procedures, and they all occurred in the traditional midline part of the incision, not in the transverse part of the incision. All the transverse parts of the incision uh, healed satisfactorily without any problems, and there were no long-term problems with wound healing anyway. So the J-laprotomy, as they call it, improves access to structures in the cranial uh, abdomen that may other side, otherwise stay out, out of reach. So then after these three soft tissue papers, I'd like to turn to orthopedic surgery. I picked out three papers here, and the first one is a paper that combines, nicely combines surgery and imaging, although it's a small series with only seven horses from Colorado State University, seven horses that were diagnosed with navicular syndrome, uh, as they state in the paper, and then treated with navicular bursoscopy, and then underwent uh, a second MRI uh, between 200 and 900 days after the first MRI. And so, as you would expect, the majority or all of these horses had deep digital flexor tendon uh, problems, and that's the main reason why they were, uh, underwent a bursoscopy, to debride uh, the lesions of the deep digital flexor tendon. Now, if you look at the condition of the navicular bursa before the surgery, four were normal, three only had effusion, and only two uh, had um, some form of soft tissue proliferation in the bursa. If you compare that to the post-surgery MRI, you can now see that all 10 horses have extensive proli proliferative tissue, that the, which the authors call uh, synovial proliferation, but I, I've always called fibroplasia or fibrous tissue proliferation. It, I kinda, it's hard to know what exactly that is, but if you think about it, if you cut the T ligament, as you do during bursoscopy, to enter the navicular bursa from proximal, there's only which, one way in which this T ligament can heal, and that's by fibroplasia, by laying down scar tissue. And, uh, of course, that scar tissue, in some cases, is going to form adhesions between the collateral sesamoidian ligaments, or pretty much in all cases, between the collateral sesamoidian ligaments and the deep digital flexor tendon. There are also three deep flexor tendon injuries that got worse, and four navicular bones that became worse on MRI after, on, on, the, second, on the second MRI. Now, interestingly, this worsening appearance on MRI did not necessarily uh, correlate with the horse's lameness status because eight out of the 10 limbs had an improved lameness grade on the second exam. Now, it's fair to say all these horses had other treatments as well, anti-inflammatory treatments, uh, regenerative therapies in the bursa or by regional perfusion, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but eight out of, out of the 10 had improved lameness 
grades, although none were sound and only two horses were able to continue working at the same level uh, as before. So the authors conclude that the appearance of navicular bursa is often worse after bursoscopy by becoming more proliferative. A worsening bursitis does not necessarily correlate with uh, a worsening degree of lameness. Yet no horse was sound and the outcome for return to work was poor. And I would like to add to that that uh, adhesiolysis, so uh, debriding adhesions in the navicular bursa, therefore must be at best a dubious indication for navicular bursoscopy because as you can see from this study and as we've seen uh, in the past you know, from our own experiences, you go in to remove one or two adhesions and you create a whole host of adhesions across the proximal aspect of the navicular bursa by severing the T ligament. So based on the results, the authors conclude that deep digital tendinopathy or navicular bone erosions are more likely to contribute to clinically relevant lameness than bursal proliferation or adhesions. My second orthopedic selection is a paper that may well be the landmark or a milestone in our approach to subconal bone cysts in horses. Um, Paolo Ravanetti, who's a, an interesting person, a surgeon, um, a private surgeon in Italy, has proposed this new Japanese implant, which is called Osteotrans, and which is a combination of hydroxyapatite in very, very small particle size with polyalactic acid uh, a, a, as, a, as an implant that can be both osteoinductive and osteoconductive. And the technique he proposed is an extra-articular transcortical approach to bone cysts to implant part of this or the, the entirety of the implant inside the cavity um, of the bone cyst. This is an absorbable implant, as you can see here. So here is a needle showing the surgical approach. Then a drill bit is advanced into the cyst cavity. A guide wire is positioned, and then the implant, you can barely see it, you can just about see it, is introduced over the guide wire. And those with a thread can be screwed into the bone so they're solidly uh, impacted in the bone. His results are quite impressive. Now, the caveat is these are all two-year-old horses for this study, but he has gone on and operated on a lot more horses from, uh, di of different age uh, as well. But of these th 38 race horses, two-year-old race horses, um, with a variety of cysts, mostly in the stifle, but also in other joints, as you can see from the radiograph, 95% of the horses were sound, 71% uh, of the horses raced after surgery, and there was an average filling in of the cyst cavity by 70%, 77%, by uh, providing new bone formation inside the, the, the cyst cavity, even improving the articular surface convexity in many horses. So the conclusions of this paper are that this surgical procedure resulted in both progressive bony healing of the lesions, even the articular surface, as I mentioned, and resolution of lameness in the vast majority of horses. The implant is invisible on radiographs, so there is no indication to remove the implant, as may, might be the case uh, with, with, with a horse where you use uh, stainless steel or, or, or metal implants. Um, and the implant technique is, is relatively simple and feasible in almost all anatomical locations of subcondyl bone cysts. So I think this may, may really be the next big thing in the treatment of subcondyl bone cysts. And then my final uh, orthopedic selection is a combination of two papers, both from Pete Rams and from Beaufort Cottages uh, in Newmarket. And he's taken it upon himself to look at the outcome of horses with dorsal chip fractures of the proximal phalanx in the fetlock joint. So the premise is that arthroscopy is considered the treatment of choice for all kinds of different reasons for these chip fractures. 
but in fact, the outcome has never been compared with a group of horses that was treated uh, uh, non-surgically by conservative management. So uh, Pete uh, found 98 horses with dorsal chip fractures in the fra in a practice, 70 were treated non-surgically, 28 surgically, and he found no difference in proportion um, in the proportion of the patients that raced after diagnosis between the non-surgical group and the surgical group. In fact, the horses who were treated non-surgically not only had a shorter recovery time and a faster return to racing, but they also did no, not show any signs of needing more intraarticular injections after, uh, after returning to racing or being at a greater risk of developing secondary joint problems like osteoarthritis. He took that further one step and published a second paper by comparing these two uh, groups, grouping them in one group uh, of P1 dorsal chip fractures and comparing them with a large group of age-matched control horses uh, uh, um, from the practice records. So he found six, 648 matched unexposed horses. And again, the results are quite uh, surprising because there was no difference between non-surgically treated, surgically treated, and unexposed horses, so horses without uh, P1 fractures for their career duration, the total number of starts, and the likelihood of ever winning a race or getting placed or earning money. There was a small difference, but a significant difference, where surgical, surgically treated horses, and this will please Bruce, had a significantly higher rate of wins per start and had four times higher career earnings than uh, the unexposed horses. However, uh, and this uh, is clearly stated in the paper, there may have been a bias towards selection of surgery for the better athletes, for the better horses, um, but there was also a bias towards surgery for the larger fragments, so maybe one outweighs the other. So the conclusions of this paper are tentative, but still interesting, I think, to consider, and certainly uh, racehorse practitioners will probably already be aware of this, is that both studies call into question the current assumptions that arthroscopy is a treatment of choice for all dorsal P1 chip fractures, uh, and that non-surgical man management appears to be a valid treatment option uh, for these fractures. So my last paper is a more general paper, slightly outside the box if you want, in terms of surgery, because it deals more with surgical infrastructure. This is a paper from the Hong Kong Jockey Club, uh, with some selected authors out of England as well. And the premise is that equine surgical facilities in some countries may be hard to get to. Um, this may be because uh, elite um, competitions are held in countries that do not necessarily have these facilities. Think about the Olympics, for instance. Um, or it may be in disaster areas, or it may be in countries where equine veterinary medicine is less advanced than, say, for instance, in the UK. So the objective of this paper was to try and build a self-contained, transportable equine surgical unit that could be loaded on the back of a lorry and transported to an area where this facility was needed. Just like, for instance, equine, uh, sorry, human mobile operating rooms can be transported on lorries, human, uh, human uh, mobile MRI units also, uh, to areas of need. And uh, what the orders did is they used a modular approach. They used shipping containers. They took the sides out of the shipping containers to create one large central space and then subdivided that space into functional areas for prep room, uh, surgical suite, sterilization area, uh, etc. So here you see, for instance, the, uh, the corner that's used, the separate area that's used for, um, for surgery. And then they added or fabricated uh, from modular steel an additional 
uh, unit, as you can see there, with a pointed roof for uh, anesthetic induction and recovery. And so the incorporation of equipment found in this unit matches any high-quality operating room. That was their ambition. That's what they managed to achieve um, um, anywhere else in the world, shall we say. And they have, pre 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 uh, they have performed surgical procedures, predominantly arthroscopic procedures, in these operating rooms. Uh, they have two in use currently. And uh, like I said, two in use, one at the Hong Kong Jockey Club for horses to come into quarantine there and can't leave quarantine uh, because of obvious reasons. And then another one uh, in Beijing in the context of supporting the Chinese horse industry in advancing clinical care for horses. So this is Chris Riggs. Most of you uh, will, will know him. Um, and I thought for the originality of thought and the practical implementation of this and also the welfare implications of this paper, I uh, selected this one to get the Surgery uh, Paper of the Year Award um, 2021. So on this note, I'd like to leave you with the thought that equine surgery is, uh, as I said before, sometimes difficult to uh, reach um, decent levels of evidence base to promote what we're doing, but we should always try and remain self-critical when we are performing uh, uh, equine surgery, just like when we're doing equine lameness treatments, um, because um, there are too many fashions and fads going around that are easy to follow, and we always need to be certain that what we do makes sense uh, and ha actually is effective. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.